0: Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers' Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. In the Salon Au Naturel, finding the provocative, the deep, the wild in writing about nature, Julene Baer, Gail Story, and David Rothman share their difficulties and triumphs, making seamless, or at least well-stitched, transitions between what's out there and what's in here, and discuss how at its best this meeting of forms breaks the confines and enlarges the territory of both.
1: I'm David Rothman. This is a a, a salon called Au Naturel. Um I notice all of you are clothed, but <laughs> That's okay. It's going to cool off. So So uh our panelists are uh, Julian Bear and Gail Story. I'm David Rothman. Um, I'm just going to do some introductions and uh, and then we'll be on our, our merry way. Uh, so, what we're going to do, I think each of us is going to talk for about 20 minutes and that'll be about an hour and then we'll have a conversation. We'll, there'll be a bit of a reading and we're going to talk about um, the challenges that uh, writers about the natural world face and how they approach what they do, and uh, as this is a, an area of tremendous and growing interest uh, in the world of writing and in the academic world in all sorts of ways, um, I'm sure you'll hear all sorts of interesting things about it. So, introductions. Gail story is the author of I Promise Not to Suffer, A Fool for Love Hikes the Pacific Crest Trail. Uh, which won the National Outdoor Book Award, which is a major award in this field, the Nautilus Silver Award and the Barbara Savage Award, as well as being a finalist in the Forward Book of the Year Awards, the Next Generation Indie Book Awards, the Colorado Book Award, and the Colorado Authors League Awards. Mm-hmm. Is that all, Gail? I mean, really. <laughs> would you please, you know, I mean.
2: The other award shall remain unnamed. What, what
1: a. I mean, it, oh, wait, it's said, and the Nobel, shortlisted for the Nobel Prize. And, 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 <laughs> I promise not to suffer was praised by Cheryl Strayed, author of Wild as, quote, witty, wise, and full of heart, as inspiring as it is hilarious, as poignant as it is smart. Um, I guess she liked it. Gail's first novel, The Lord's Motel, was praised by the New York Times Book Review as, quote, a tale of unwise judgment and wise humor. Uh, her second novel, God's Country Club, was a Barnes & Noble Discover Great New Writer's selection. Her website, including the outrageous book trailer for I Promise Not to Suffer, is at story all one word, dot com. She's married to Dr. Peter Story, a national leader in hospice and palliative medicine. They live in Boulder, Colorado. A former administrative director of the University of Houston Creative Writing Program, Gail now writes, hoop dances, and jumps out of cakes, not necessarily at the same time. <laughs> we, we were going to bring a cake, but we only have those cupcakes, and they're, they're sort of small. Um, Julian Baer's first book, One Degree West, Reflections of a Plain's Daughter, won Midlist Press's first series award and Women Writing the West's Willa Award. That's a wad of W's in that phrase. In that Her second book, <laughs> The Ogallala Road, a memoir of love and reckoning from Viking Penguin, which came out uh, just in March of this year, explores High Plains Farmer's tragic love affair with the rapidly depleting Ogallala Aquifer. The story unfolds by way of Juline's own love affair with a Kansas rancher she meets when she goes home to explore the watershed. In a review for the New York Times, Mark Bittman hailed the Ogallala Road as, quote, polished, touching, and engaging, and Julene as, quote, a tough, restless, energetic, admirable, principled Kansan. It's interesting, you have to put the word principled before Kansan? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, what about the rest of them? The restless know.
3: part is probably true. <laughs> principled, I don't think you want to read a book by anyone who's uh, too
1: principled. I, w- I, I want a book by an unprincipled, Kansas. but that's okay. Yeah. Who also happens to be a fine writer. A graduate of the University of Iowa Writers' Workshop and Iowa's nonfiction writing program, Julene has also won a National Endowment for the Arts Fellowship and, from the Wyoming Arts Council, the Warren Adler Award for, quote, the best story written in Wyoming, and the Blanchen Award for Writing Inspired by Nature. Her essays and fiction have appeared in venues ranging from the New York Times to High Country News. She has taught at the universities of Wyoming and Iowa, and in the Iowa Summer Writing Festival, she now lives in Longmont, Colorado. And uh, she has a website, which is also uh, named for her, julienbear.com. As for me, I'm David Rothman. I've uh, taught here at Lighthouse for many years. I've also taught at the University of Colorado at Boulder, at Denver University, many other places. I run the poetry track of the creative writing MFA at Western State Colorado University, and on July 1st, I'm going to become the director of that program, of the whole program. So this means, unfortunately, I'll be leaving Lighthouse, which is uh, I'm very sorry to have to do because I, I love it here, but we're going to be moving back up to Gunnison, where I lived for many years. Um, I was co founder and first executive director of the uh, Crested Butte Music Festival. I lived outside of academe for a long time and ran nonprofits. I've been the headmaster of a private school. Um, I publish in many genres. Uh, most recently, two books of poetry in 2013. Uh, and yes, all the books are for sale <laughs> here. <laughs> and I also published a book of creative nonfiction called Living the Life Tales from America's Mountains and Ski Towns, which is a. Uh, Meditation on the ski world The ski life But not just about the sport So uh, without further ado Why don't we just jump right in The floor is yours
3: Okay, David Thank you very much For uh, that introduction Which I wrote myself if you... <laughs> and, uh, But thanks for reading it so well <laughs> and, uh, and you actually pronounced Ogallala correctly Which that's probably a first In the introductions That have been read for me in my trek across the country promoting this book. Um, This morning, I reread the copy that I wrote for this panel uh, months and months ago. And, you know, when you write these things, you don't necessarily know exactly what you want to do. You just kind of try to be within the ballpark. So I said, they will share their difficulties and triumphs, making seamless or at least well-stitched transitions between what's out there and in here and discuss how, at its best, this meeting of forms breaks the confines and enlarges the territory of both. So I read that and I thought, hmm, we will? <laughs> <laughs> well, nothing that a little Google search can't help, right? You've always got Google to turn to, so I I typed in memoir nature writing. And practically the first thing that came up with it was this very Intriguing review by a gentleman named Jim Hinch for the L.A. Review of Books, written in July 2013, about Cheryl Strayed's Wild. He had noted that in Wild, which is about hiking the Pacific Crest Trail and coming to terms with her life and grief and so on, that she hadn't actually talked much about nature and I noticed that, too, when I read the book, and so I was immediately interested. One thing I noticed was that, and I have to say, present company accepted. I mean, Gail wrote about the Pacific Crest, Crest Trail and really wrote a lot about nature and about its fierceness as well as its beauty. But when Strayed wrote Wild... Um, she didn't even really bother to describe nature much. Um, she didn't even work hard in her descriptions. She's an excellent writer. But she just didn't put herself out on behalf of nature. And what, what Jim Hinch says, one of the many very intelligent things he says, is it's an eat, pray, love-style autobiographical quest that only happens to be set in the outdoors. Far from reviving nature writing, Wilde's runaway success marks a further step toward extinction for the genre. And I want to note what time it is, just so I don't over-talk here. Okay. So, um, really what Strayed was able to do, and I do this to some extent in my work, too, is she enlarged her story by having it be set in a very grand landscape. Hench also says, "...for all the billowing energy of Strayed's voice, the story she tells in Wilde is ultimately not that different from countless other memoirs of difficult childhoods followed by personal and professional redemption." Wilderness, by contrast, is near infinite in its permutations, so many of its workings remain a mystery. In the encounter between that mystery and an inquisitive mind, limits of knowledge are explored and realities are revealed, more various and unexpected than the repetitive tropes of memoir. Well, of course, this cast me back on my own memoir had me asking questions about, am I guilty of the same thing? His his main complaint is that nature is indeed indifferent to us. That's, that's a word that often comes up when people talk about nature. But we humans don't tend to like that. We want things to be about us. And we are in a time that is very human-centric, more and more so, where people are spending less and less time Outdoors and and they um, are more inward turning, and and so he says that it can actually be f- damaging to the to nature writing form for there to be books like this out there. I'm not sure if that's true that it's actually damaging to the form, but he he raises some really interesting questions. So I'm I was asking myself, well, am I doing the same thing? And then I thought, well. Actually, I'm not a nature writer. I've I've never really claimed to be a nature writer. What I am is more of a transcendentalist. I was a natural-born transcendentalist, meaning that I go into nature hoping to escape my little world and fuse with the larger being beyond me that I share a being with. But most times I forget that. And when I'm out in nature, it can be a truly transformative experience. When I was a child of 12, I had a horse named Flame who was too wild to ride. When, he, when she came home from the horse breakers, I, I got on her and she promptly threw me off in the yard. And I grew up on a farm in western Kansas. And it was a hard, gnarly yard, and my dad would not let me get back on. So ever after, I dreamed of riding flame. And so I wrote poetry about riding flame across the prairie. And in one poem, I'm riding her bareback, of course, and we're going at full speed, of course. And I reach down, and I grab onto a tumbleweed, and the tumbleweed... Now, this is very unsavory to my mind, you know, now, but it, it goes into my skin, which tumbleweeds will do. They have thorns on them. And I fuse with the prairie, and then the wind is carrying us along, and I'm, we're all one. You know, I was writing like that when I was 12 years old. I don't know where I got it exactly. I'm sure I got it somewhere from the culture somehow. When I was about 16 years old, we left that farm that I grew up on, and that life we'd had on the farm had been a very interwoven, enmeshed experience. It was a very sensory world I grew up in. There were many varieties of domestic animals and many varieties of wild animals that we tried to tame, and and we had a family that had its own nature of wildlife and and neighbors who had their quirks as well. And it was all a community, and it was really all that my family on either side, my mother's or my father's, had ever done, going back into the European past. That's all we'd ever done is farm. And then when I was 16, my father traded that land that I grew up on for some other land close to some other holdings that he farmed, and we moved to town which was a little town called Goodland, Kansas. Most of you have probably driven through it at some point. And we, my, they built a little ranch-style house. And it could have been in any suburb in the United States. And we talked about how wonderful it was and how clean and neat and nice the house now was, not like that big old, which was actually a very beautiful ramshackle kind of house that, we'd, that I'd grown up in. My mother didn't even want to have any cats in this house. She usually had at least one house cat, but she sent her house cat to the other farm because she didn't want to spoil this new house's antiseptic beauty and cleanliness and whatnot. Well, I absorbed this as a shock in my system. It's not it's not particularly bad as far as childhood experiences go. You know, it's not really that psychologically wounding perhaps. But it is what made me a writer. Because at that, at that juncture, there was this disconnect, all of a sudden, between my real identity and how I was now living. So when I was about, I didn't realize that, though. When I was about 18 years old, I left Kansas, and I went to San Francisco, and I guess I wanted to find Nirvana or something. It was the late 60s. And I lived there for about eight years. And then I started going camping in the mountain wilderness in California. And I took my first dive into a big, deep, clear, beautiful, blue, cold mountain lake. And I have never been the same since. It's just like I woke up as a sensory human being and someone who just loved nature, which is who I had been in my childhood, too. I just hadn't been conscious of it, really. And from there, I went on to discover the Mojave Desert in Southern California, which I also fell in love with, because here I was again in a big, open, bright, always sunlit place that had not been spoiled by humankind. And there were so many mysteries there, craggy mountains to explore and that sort of thing. So finally it got so it was more difficult for me to go back to the city on the weekend than than almost anything. And I decided I had to live in the desert. So I decided I would be this modern-day Thoreau. And I found this ranching couple out in the middle of the Mojave Mountain wilderness who had this little rock house that had a fallen-in roof and no windows. And I convinced them to let me fix it up and move into it. So I did that, and of course, I didn't become a famous writer within the two-year period I'd set for myself. Indeed, I lined my outhouse walls with my rejection slips from places like the New Yorker and the Atlantic and so on. But it still was a really wonderful period in my life. Um, I came into my own there in many ways because I was able to do things there that I had grown up thinking that only boys could do, like work on my own truck, build my own kitchen cabinets. Uh, and, and that sort of thing. And I'm just going to write, and I also had a place I liked to swim, so I'm gonna, going to read you two paragraphs from this period in my life, looking back on this period. Closing my eyes, I pictured the sun shimmering in the leaves of the grandfather cottonwood that towered over the stock water storage tank I'd swum in every summer afternoon when I lived at the rock house. Beside it, the windmill was probably spinning right now. Were I there, I would be standing on Dorf's hood, performing my ablutions. First, I would dip my head in. My scalp burning with cold, I would shampoo my hair and rinse onto the ground using the old aluminum saucepan I kept there for the purpose. After washing, I would dive in. I loved that first thrill. Once my body had unclenched and acclimated, I would float on my back in the silken water. My arms spread and stare up into the cottonwood branches, where a pair of tanagers, their bodies yellow, the male's head fire orange, flitted back and forth, bringing food to the nestlings. Imprinted on my memory were the conical peaks of the Pinto Mountains, dappled in juniper. They, and the craggy, sandstone pinnacles of the New York range beyond them, spoke the layered language of geology— To float in that valley had been to float on the sea of time. Daily I revolved, my arms and legs extended like clock dials, at the center of everything, water and desert, the water being the desert's most profound expression of itself, the antithesis without which desert could not exist, the joy that made its barren beauty habitable. When I wrote that passage, it was about the time that I spent immediately after my desert period, and I was living back in western Kansas on my father's farm, which was a real bring down for me. You know, I had been flying pretty high out in the Mojave, but then I made the mistake of meeting this charming local cowboy who tended to drink too much and so on, and it turned out to be a pretty huge marital mistake. So I wound up back home in western Kansas on my father's farm, and he, he actually accepted me as his possible successor. So it was a wonderful step up in status for a farm daughter. But during that period, I was living back home. I discovered that we were now, of course, it was obvious, we were now pumping water at an unsustainable rate out of the Ogallala Aquifer, which is the water under the Great Plains all the way from southern South Dakota to north Texas. And we thought of it as limitless, but everyone knew it truly wasn't. And this bothered me quite a bit because I was working as my dad's, one of his flood men, and I would go out and open the gates on the pipes each day And I would just see that water flowing onto the ground. And having come from the desert recently, that was just an assault on my sensibilities. So I always knew I wanted to write about the Ogallala Aquifer. So many years later, I decided it was time, and I set out to do it. But the problem was I, I did not really have the story to go with the topic. And I was searching for that story basically inside myself but but one day I went out to western Kansas for a visit and I wanted to see if I could find any of the springs that still flowed onto the surface out of the aquifer. Many of them had dried up because of groundwater pumping. I hoped I could find one because it would be a commentary on my own family's practices if I did not. Well I did find a spring that day But I also discovered another rare find. And I'm going to read just a section from that now. Very short section. I'm going to summarize just a bit so I don't go over time. This man, it turned out, he was just a local rancher. He was out there delivering horses or picking up horses from a neighbor. It turned out that he had read my first book. Nobody out there read my first book, except for my high school English teacher, perhaps. So this is the kind of dialogue that we had after he told me he read his first book, my first book. Could use a little of that winter weather now, Ward said. My favorite author is Cormac McCarthy. Were we really standing in a Kansas pasture? Louis Lamour, I might have expected. Or Zane Gray. I like the way he drops into Spanish, I said. Soy yo que traigo las yeguas de las montañas. You memorized that, Ward said. What does it mean? Tis I who brings the mares from the mountains, I declaimed. When I taught at the University of Wyoming several years ago, I always assigned all the pretty horses, even though I think McCarthy was intentionally over-romantic in that book. He was playing with the cowboy myth. I don't know about that, Ward said. His tone made me wonder if he'd ever heard the two words, myth and cowboy, together before. I'll admit, McCarthy did get some of the details wrong, he continued. Did you notice that whenever those two boys went into a saloon, they would take their cigarettes out of their shirt pockets and put them on the bar top? Now, a cowboy just wouldn't do that. What would a cowboy do? He'd leave them in his pocket, take them out when he wanted one, then put them back. Earlier, I let it be known that Jake's father, my son's father, was a cowboy. This had to be the most ridiculous rule I'd ever heard, and I'd heard a lot of them. I glanced at Ward's rough-out leather boots and his jeans, bunched at the ankle. Jake's dad used to stand before the mirror making sure his pant legs bunched exactly like that. He'd explain that a cowboy wore his pants long so they wouldn't appear too short when he straddled a horse. He had a whole list... Cowboys didn't wear sunglasses or feathers on their hats. They wouldn't wear a buckle like wards unless they'd won it. They wouldn't be caught dead in shorts. They called women ladies. And to him, he said, that's what I would always be. I'd learned the hard way how false such chivalry was. So that gives you an overview of the different types of writing in my book. And I'm going to turn the microphone over to Gail.
2: That that was really very illuminating, Julie. Thank (laughs) Thank you. you. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, the, uh, the first line of my book uh, is, I never much cared for nature, or rather thought it okay, as long as it stayed outside. <laughs> and I had absolutely no business hiking the Pacific Crest Trail, which is 2,663 miles from the border of Mexico to the border of Canada. But... My husband, who is a hospice and palliative care physician, was in a tremendous career crisis. We lived in Houston at the time, and um, he... um this is all in the book But anyway He really uh, he, he said one. He came home one night After a uh, really difficult day at work And he said Can you all hear me by the way If I got the mic right yes. Okay um, He said um, I know Let's hike the Pacific Ross Trail <laughs> And he said I know you'd love it Wow I knew I would not love it. I was basically a dinner party hostess. I wear, you know, I love tiaras, and um, <laughs> I knew I would not love um, trudging across the Mojave in a hundred-plus degree heat day after day, uh, near kicking steps up snow in the High Sierra, nearly drowning in rapids of snow melt. Um, Encountering wild animals I just had a feeling It was not my thing but I really love him, and um, we had been married 17 years at that point. And rather than let him go alone, because it was clear he needed to do this, I just, I, uh, that night we happened to be drinking a really great Malbec. <laughs> so I knocked back the rest of my Malbec, probably finished the bottle actually, and said, Why the hell not? I'll go too. And so, um, I'd like to illustrate the, the, uh, the points that I'm making by by reading, so that you can see what I'm talking about, and um, the the um, one way that I feel that I have stitched the disparate pieces of my life together, and believe me, they've been extremely disparate. I have quite a checkered past. Uh, has has been um, humor. Humor is the Irish way of dealing with pain, and so I learned that early. So here's a little bit of how Porter and I um, coped before we hiked the Pacific Crest Trail. I didn't like the idea of leaving our home and friends to hike until exhausted, then camp in the dirt. But I longed to be alone with Porter, far from the demands on our lives over the last 17 years. Even more, I felt swept downstream by an irresistible momentum. I was caught up in it. My life seemed no longer my own. I couldn't go on this hike. It would be a nightmare. I was going, and it would be a nightmare. No, 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 but yes. Porter and I coped with our anxiety about the trip in different ways. We moved to a rented loft in Houston's downtown warehouse district where he set up a kind of base camp. We put our bed in the loft living room so he could use the bedroom as a staging area for our six-month trek. He lined one wall with wire cubicles to sort the different types of jackets, shirts, pants, hats, gloves, socks, boots, and camping gear for the wildly varying weather of the Pacific Crest Trail, from hot desert to wind and rain, not to mention snow. He set up the sewing machine he'd inherited from his Aunt Noreen and got busy making us an ultralight tarp and backpacks. He was a disciple of the ultralight gear king, Ray Jardine. Meanwhile, I set about hosting dinner parties for friends we wouldn't see for six months or ever again if we died. (laughs) I loved throwing dinner parties complete with themed menus and party favors. No one could believe we were really going to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. You won't make her carry a pack on her little bird-like shoulders, my friend Madeline shrieked at Porter at one of our dinners. I'm 5 feet 7 inches and 125 pounds with barely 16% body fat. She has the perfect hiker's body from the waist down, he said. I listened as they argued the merits of my long legs and birthing hips. Birthing hips? That's enough, I said finally. I'm too old to have a baby out there. (laughs) Porter got out the pack he was making for me, light enough for me to carry with wide, well-padded straps for my bony shoulder, shoulders and collarbone. Store-bought pack straps chafed and gave me blisters. But there was another problem, pack-wise. For a small-boned woman, I had big breasts. Where do my boobs go, I asked when I tried it on. <laughs> straps placed wide apart slid off my shoulders. Narrowly placed, they crushed my breasts. A lift and separate cross-my-heart version made Porter study the problem for more minutes than was called for. (laughs) Doesn't anyone make a pack and a 32D, I demanded? Eventually, he came up with a padded band to connect the side straps across my upper chest, parallel to the strap across my hips. My breasts look framed for a hiker museum, but... Hey, it worked. Our friends worried about snakes, mountain lions, and bears. I've watched a bear open a can of tuna with one swipe and suck out the contents in a lip smacking second, one said. And if a mountain lion comes after you, you're a toast. These were fears I couldn't relate to, unimaginable threats on an unimaginable trail. What I was really afraid of were my own unpredictable feelings. Would I cry and bail? What do you really want, I asked myself, to snuggle with Porter in the wilderness or fret alone at home in our cozy bed? One of the best parts of our marriage was waking up in the middle of the night and seeing for sure that the other was still on the planet. Not to mention our love life, although Porter began to stay up all night sewing our outdoor gear. You sew gear is a sublimation for sex, I told him. Sex, he said, is a sublimation for people who can't sew their own equipment.
1: <laughs>
2: <laughs> so my learning curve was incredibly steep. I really hadn't ever hiked or camped before. I, it was something I was totally unprepared for, uh, hiking 20-plus miles a day up and down mountains and but and terrible and beautiful things happen happened to us in a way it really was glorious to be outside in the in the natural world in a vastly um changing terrain um, on the other hand, Porter set his pants on fire not once but twice, lighting our alcohol stove and um the and 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 it was it was it was beautiful to climb snowy peaks and touch the cobalt sky mm-hmm. and um then we had we had our sex fights you know couples have Different issues and our sex fights followed us on the Pacific Crest Trail. And at one point, we're in the middle of the sex fight, and um, we came to this huge chasm where um, the trail was just gone. And so um, we interrupted our sex fight to figure out how to get Porter through. Went down, climbed up the other side, and there was nothing but this kind of tree root at the at the bottom. And um, so he said. Just you know, just throw yourself down, and I'll come and get your pack, and then um, then you'll join me on the other side. So I threw myself down under this tree root, and I gotta tell you, it was like fucking a tree. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, so that's you know, th- that's how when when the uh, the story of hiking the trail is not. I didn't even really think about stitching it together. It just seemed to me that so many things happened on the trail that were perfectly meshed with our regular life that I, there wasn't a lot of stitching required. It, it, well, we you can we can talk about that later. Um, and. Uh, At the beginning of each chapter, I have the mileage that we are from the Mexico border and how many miles we still have to go to the Canadian border. And uh, it's at the beginning of this chapter that goes from Mexico, 200 miles, to Canada, 2,463 miles. (laughs) And when Porter was reading the book for the first time between two covers, he would read these these mileages at the beginning of each chapter, and he would say... They are never gonna make it. <laughs> um, and here's another kind of example of how the interior resonates with the exterior. We pounded down and around countless switchbacks out of the San Jacinto Mountains, and just 18 miles, we descended 7,000 feet. With the drop in altitude, we found ourselves in an entirely new ecosystem, from the deer and wildcats in the snowfields to lizards and snake and the sagebrush. We moved through our own shifting ecosystems of body, mind, and heart. These, um, these shifting ecosystems are fascinating to me because they mirror the shifting interior ecosystems. And what I found happened to me was um, I would call it a deconstruction of the self, the lowercase s, self. And um, deconstruction is um, kind of a literary word. But for me, I was fucking falling apart on every level. And what happens is that the um, first, the first layer of yourself to go is the physical. In in one sense, you're ramping up, like you're really learning how to um, hike 20 plus miles a day under arduous conditions, and. Um, so you're you're getting better, you're getting stronger physically. At the same time, the body is breaking down and and is subject to injuries. We were getting injured at the same time we were growing stronger in other ways. And then the next thing that um, happens when you become more um, physically broken down is. And I realize I'm putting this in a fairly linear way, and it doesn't necessarily happen in a linear way. It's more like a kind of a downward spiral, in my experience. <laughs> and so the next thing that happened after my, you know, I did get injured. I tore my anterior deltoid. I couldn't sleep at night for the twitching in my legs and all these other things. And um, so the emotional self becomes very raw because you're dealing with pain, but at the same time it's Glorious you wouldn't give this up for anything I certainly didn't want to go home And so um, So the emotional Self becomes very raw And open and vulnerable And another thing that um, Is That makes That I think makes this book um, have elements of memoir as well as a wilderness story is that uh, other, uh, two other big things were going on at the same time. One, my mother had had a recurrence of breast cancer, and so I would call her from a, from a, uh, a resupply town. Uh, every week to ten days, whenever we came into one, and just and my mother and I. And another thing that's articulated in the in the book is the dis- very distant relationship I had with my mother, owing to my fall into sex, drugs, and rock and roll, which are somewhat elucidated in the book um, in the late sixties. And uh, so you see, this is you know this is not really. a hiking story it's got a lot more the hiking story is kind of an excuse for all these other permutations of my checkered past (laughs) and so the um so meanwhile i was struggling to come to terms with my relationship with my mother and staying in touch and she wasn't very communicative on our phone call phone calls and um um So, and then the other thing that was happening was Porter and I were going through a lot with our marriage because this was the first time that we had been really alone together in 17 years because um, we were helping raise his son who was only four years old when we got married and... His ex-wife only lived a mile from us, was very involved in our lives, and I was kind of a fifth wheel. So another reason, truth be told, that I wanted to go on this hike with him is I thought for the first time in my marriage I'm going to get him to myself. And um, so we had all of our marital dynamics, not just the sex part, but a lot of other things going on at the same time. And um, then I think that what happens after the um, the emotional rawness is this. I think of the psychological as being um, deeper in many ways. It's another level from the physical and the emotional, another layer down. And so psychologically, there were a lot of things going on. And then even deeper than the psychological is what I think of as the spiritual, the soul level. And in and um, what. What changed out there Was even my sense of myself Not only in all the, as a physical self An emotional self, a psychological self But my sense of my spiritual self Totally transformed So um, I would like to Read to you a bit of how that um, How that, this, that Spiritual self Because it's, it's, it's kind of um, the epitome Of all of these different selves Breaking down and coming together In a new way uh, and the biggest problem that Porter and I had were, uh, was the disparities in our physical and emotional abilities to hike the Pacific Crest Trail. So this is the last section that I'll read. Uh, and our biggest, biggest trail dilemma was, was this dis, uh, disparity in our abilities. Could we resolve our trail dilemma as we had Porter, Porter's fundamental dilemma as a hospice doctor and mine as a hospice doctor's wife? Day in, day out, throughout our marriage, Porter had absorbed the pain of dying people and those who loved them. He became the steady presence that allowed for the stark reality that everyone who lived also died. I became the steady presence at home that allowed him to rest, eat, prepare to bear witness again. No wonder he wanted to walk through the cycles of nature, death, birth, growth, no wonder I wanted to walk with him, toward nature, each other, ourselves. Help me, I cried, to the emptiness of the sun-baked landscape. My heart was a rock I wanted broken open, my thoughts a tangled underbrush I wanted scorched to the ground. I ran far ahead of him, until out of breath, out of space and time. I forgot who I was or where, until rounding a switchback, I stopped. Sauntering toward me was an enormous cat, tawny gold as sunlit sand. Her muscular shoulders rose and fell. Her haunches swayed side to side against the solid rock of the mountainside. Her long tail flowed behind her, catching flecks of light. The world slowed to the rhythm of her movement. Suddenly, she saw me. She raised her sculpted head, looked through me with her green-gold eyes. We contemplated each other. Gaze. Rest. Gaze. Rest. Listen. Rest. Listen. Wait. Listen. Gaze. Listen. Be. Finally, she didn't so much break as dissolve our gaze. Gaze. She turned her massive body gracefully in the narrow space of the trail back toward the way she came. Then she was gone. In the absolute quiet, everything was light and clear. The mountains fell away. All there was was the loveliness of silence. I existed to listen. I was the listening. The wind moved through the absolute stillness. I was as supple as wind, as still as the sky. Thanks.
1: Uh, great. <clears throat> Thanks to both of you. I have a, I'm going to say a couple of things about, about nature and a couple of things about nature writing, and then I'm going to read something uh, from my book, uh, Living the Life. I didn't mention this in my introduction, but I've been very involved, very interested in the natural world ever since I was quite young. I grew up in western Massachusetts, and uh, the thing that really got me involved, other than growing up in such a beautiful part of the world, was athletics, in particular skiing, through which I discovered what it's like to be out on a mountain when it's 20 below or raining in January. and loving every single minute of it. And I grew up running around in fields and skating on rivers, and uh, yeah, there were woods all around the house. And so the, the natural world was never far away, and I immediately caught into it, especially because so much of my social and competitive life as a boy and a man w- was so involved with an environment sport. And I call an environment sport very different from a ball sport or a field sport. There's no field you know, and this sports in this, cat- in this category would be sailing, surfing, golf, of course, hiking, rock climbing, skiing. Um, a number of them are gliss sports, the sliding sports. And this meant a tremendous amount to me. Um, growing up, and I stayed involved, ski racing through college and then becoming very involved in the world of ski mountaineering, which is described in the book, and actually going to places to live there because of those sports and then as a result of that developing a consciousness of the natural world and I I wound up um, very interested for example in the the great American poet Robinson Jeffers Um, how many of you have read Robinson Jeffers? yeah Uh, that's like not having read him is like having money in the bank he's really one of the greatest maybe the single most transformative writer about the natural world who who ever lived Uh, I mean the only others I can think of In that league might be Wordsworth And a few others Uh, Jeffers coined a term inhumanism To to denote what he felt was wrong With humanity He's really the Arnie Ness was inspired by him in part To create the notion of deep ecology Edward Abbey refers to him And knows half of it by heart And quotes him throughout Desert Solitaire Um, He lived in Carmel for most of his life And I encourage encourage you to read him He uh He's an amazing, an amazing writer. One of the great, one of the ten American poets who's going to last. In any event, you know, here we are um, in this, uh, sitting in this city. And, of course, we had to turn up the microphones because people were mowing their lawns. Um, <laughs> and as, I, as, as you were reading, a, a stray cat ran across the parking lot. <laughs> we're surrounded by animals and uh, plants. But the interesting thing is, of course, that we're living in a kind of a garden because this grass here would not survive a season without being uh, attended to. And in fact, um, it seems to me that most nature writing uh, actually begins in the garden. You know, Paleolithic human beings are people who are, you know, in the, uh, before the Romantics, uh, nobody called him or herself a nature writer. There was no such thing, per se. And the question of where nature writing, modern nature writing, comes from is a very interesting one because we now accept it as a genre. But it's relatively recent, and I'd suggest that before, you know, Goethe, Rousseau, Wordsworth, uh, uh, there's nothing really that looks like modern nature writing. Wordsworth in English is probably one of the most important ones. And then in the 20th century, of course, it changes yet again. It's a really interesting question where it comes from. after all, uh, those folks who were mowing their lawns were outside doing something with plants, presumably, and you know trying to maintain these these lawns that we imported from England. Because you know, if you were wealthy in England, you displayed that with a huge stretch of of open grass, um, and so we brought that. You know, Anglo culture brought that with them, um, Native Americans presumably weren't going out and saying, you know, geez, we really got to mow this thing. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, 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 it wasn't part of the, the culture. Uh, we, we, it's a complete import. And yet, we consider it beautiful and natural and appropriate. And we sculpt our cities and use huge amounts of water Depleting our aquifers, to do things like have golf courses in Tucson of all places, where you know the water might you might as well be just like firing it into the sky with a cannon, uh, and that's about how, how long it lasts. So this question of of what the natural world is, what the wilderness is, what wildness is, uh, is is an interesting question, and um, I would suggest frankly that um, most people who who think about it in this way are fairly literate and cultivated people, and they're extending a tradition that we do have that extends much further back than the romantics when we write about uh, the natural world, and that is the pastoral. The pastoral, after all, being the genre in which uh, rarefied city types uh, tell stories of shepherds named Chloe and Amaryllis and so on and uh, shepherdesses and they, the, who, whose love they compete for. And we have this in the eclogues of Virgil and in other places. And I would suggest that modern nature writing descends from that uh, cosmopolitan writing, which is really the primary genre where we see the natural world being depicted to begin with in classical antiquity. Because as far as wilderness went, most of, most people went simply, you know, I'm not going there. Uh, Hicks and Leones, there are lions here. I'm not, you know, I, I don't want to... Uh, be ripped to pieces by wild beasts. Uh, and in that sense, you know, it helps us to understand what it is that we're doing and how we're negotiating these very complicated questions as we as we try to write about the natural world. Um, and it, I think it's very useful to have a historical sense of, of where this writing comes from and how it developed, uh, especially in the poets, of course. Uh, but into every genre, into memoir, into fiction. After all, Edward Abbey really wanted to be a famous novelist, but he was such a good philosopher that most of his characters are sort of stillborn except in The Monkey Ranch Gang. He's really a novelist of ideas, even at his best, and an essayist more than anything else. Um, And he had what I think most of the great writers about nature have now that I would encourage everyone who's interested in this to pursue. And here's sort of my my second topic before I read, which is... um, I assume that most people are here because they're interested in writing about the natural world in one way or another. And if you look at our, our strongest writers in this regard, including the two writers to my right, but uh, you know, also including the illustrious dead, the poets, as I mentioned, Wordsworth and uh, you know John Haynes, Robinson Jeffers, uh, W. S. Merwin, who's also a great botanist, has a botanical garden in which he's planted something like two hundred and seventy-three varieties of palm. He spends his mornings trying to recreate a pre contact ecosystem on the northern part of the island of Maui in his garden, and then he writes in the afternoons. Gary Snyder, um, uh, uh, Mary Austin, uh, Barbara uh, Kingsolver, um, oh gosh, you know, I mean, the list could sort of go on and on. Ed Abbey, and many, many others, and those are just. Mostly Americans. What we find is that while the wilderness becomes a kind of a garden for us, but we also find something that I think is absolutely crucial because it's important to remember that we're making art, and art is a form is short for artifice or artificial. And uh, what you have to find is an idiom. An idiom. The genre is easy. You know, we we can all identify it. Whether it's memoir, nature writing, fiction, nature writing, poetry in nature. An idiom. And by an idiom, I mean a characteristic mode of expression that is compelling and powerful. Because without that idiom, you wind up falling into um, cliches. You wind up falling into um, generic thinking. And no matter how sincere you are or how much you love nature or even how much you know, you're not going to write something that is a compelling piece of writing. And this is writing. It has to be compelling writing. And what happens is, I think, that there are certain kinds of tones or attitudes that people take when writing about the natural world, and we see this all the time, um, that are, um, you know, no matter how sincere, no matter how righteous, cliched and dull, you know, there's uh, the kind of writing uh, that's, you know, hushed and precious and um, sort of has a kind of soft glow of religiosity or spirituality about it, but doesn't really... um, Do something as language on the page that is compelling and interesting, and that's what you have to do. And you have to figure out a way to do it that is fresh. Um, It's not enough to just to say, you know, well, I think sunsets are a turn on. You have to have something new and meaningful to say about them, and that means you've got to read a lot of the very best nature writing. You have to read Aldo Leopold and Robinson Jeffers and Wordsworth and uh, Pastoral and Rousseau and uh, Gail Story and Julian Baer and uh, Mary Austin, who is, I mean, just writes like an angel. Um, there's a reason why these people are famous, and it's not because they're smarter and it's not because they're better botanists, it's because they um, they wrote better. So, uh, in my book, uh, one of the things I tried to do was uh, And I think the reason it came together for me It took me 20 years to figure this out Was to discover an idiom in which I could write about The people who devote part of their lives to living in the Alpine world Especially to ski Because that had never been done It had been done for the other environment sports Golf, skiing, um, I mean golf, surfing, mountain climbing Perhaps because they were older Perhaps because they were luckier I don't know uh, you know, because modern downhill skiing is really only a century old. Sailing's a lot older than that, as is fishing, another great lifestyle sport. I mean, I think of a novel like A River Runs Through It. It's not great because it's the greatest thing ever. He's not the most knowledgeable fisherman, but the way he writes about it is so compelling. It's completely unforgettable, and weaves it together with his human life without any sentimentality, although with very powerful feeling. Um, same for the Monkey Wrench Gang. Same for... I'm blocking on her name Who wrote that wonderful book about Salt Lake Terry Tempest Williams And that's what happens in great writing about the natural world Is that kind of an invention of an idiom And that's what I sought So I didn't really write about skiing Although there's skiing throughout the book I didn't want to write about gear And I didn't want to write about technique And I didn't want to write about travel Although that's all in there I wanted to write about what it's like to live this life And one of the things that I don't think there's enough of is humor So there's a lot of pathos in the book People die you know, in most ski magazine stories, nobody dies. Uh, I have friends who've died in the mountains. One died just a few weeks ago. Um, but there's also humor. So I'm going to read something that's not about skiing at all, but, and is, uh, has a rather different take on nature. And uh, this I wrote originally because Laura Pritchett, who also, I'm sure many of you know her, she writes very beautifully about the natural world. She was writing a book on, um, or she was editing a book on, uh, I don't know what it was called, but it was about—I think it was about nature and sex—and so I thought about this, and um, I thought, you know, I have something to say about that. And this is what I wrote. The book never never made it to press, but I kept the essay. Um, I hope you like it. It's called "On Going to Bed." You know, I, I, when I was a kid, I would look at people doing this. And I'd go, "What's wrong with them?" I mean, honestly, I hate this shit It's ridiculous I realized the other day that I'm older than my grandmother was when I was born It's ridiculous At any rate, I'm going to bed Oh yeah, you know, I'm healthier than she was though Although, Although I don't think I'm as tough, honestly Although many animals have specific times of day, month, or year when they procreate Most are indifferent about location as long as it meets utilitarian and fairly broad environmental parameters Even higher order and relatively intelligent vertebrates, e.g. dogs, generally do not, unless rigorously trained and sharply ordered to desist, stand down for environmental context, but basically hump at will. Once they're ready to proceed, the world is, so to speak, their oyster. No tomcat, goldfish, frog, microbe, hummingbird, or goat in rut ever turned to his or her partner and said, not here, it's just too icky. In fact, some of the smaller ones are what made the place icky in the first place. For them, nature is everywhere and sex just happens. So why not us? Because, come on, admit it, when we are really honest with ourselves, stare in the mirror, acknowledge the grief, contemplate our flaws honest, shouldn't we admit that lovemaking and the natural world go together about as well as airplanes and tornadoes, or birds and windows, roadkill and mustard? My musings are not merely theoretical. I believe in testing abstractions against the pulse of experience. Most of the times I've tried to get it on in the great outdoors have wound up resembling a Marx Brothers movie more than, say, Swan Lake. They weren't even deliciously lustful and nasty, just incredibly uncomfortable. Once, in college, my sweetheart and I decided to make love under a spreading apple tree in a field. We were young and coupled vigorously and successfully. She spread her long skirt, sat astride me, I penetrated her deliciously, and we were rather proud at how we were enjoying ourselves undetected, even though cars whizzed by on a country road not a quarter of a mile away. (laughs) Cows munched bucolically. Then, as we began to grind towards a juicy, sweaty, shared climax, I realized that an insect was trying to crawl into my rectum. Which unfortunately meant that I had to move my hand. Put it back in, she said. Put it back. Ouch, I said, and she gave me such a sad look. In the end, it all worked out. We were both smiling, and all was well until a few hours later when I realized that either a tick or a spider had defended itself from our invasion by taking a huge bite of my ass, injecting poison that swelled up to the size of a red, angry silver dollar and hurt like hell for a week, making it almost impossible to sit. (laughs) Several years later, I was living in a foreign country teaching English. Not only did I look different from everyone there, the government of this particular country made made it its business to have a lot of control over everything. I mean, everything. My relationship at the time was on the rocks, and a lovely young woman from yet another country offered to ease my pain. We made off into the woods one cloudy ink-black night and had a wonderful time rolling around on pine needles, gently kissing each other, etc., until we heard some rustling here and there and saw some movement here and there and realized we were being watched at a respectful distance by what appeared to be a small battalion of locals committed to upholding the decency of the people. No doubt, if that happened today, we would have awakened in the morning to emails featuring our glistening buttocks all over YouTube. <laughs> Another time, several years after that, when my wife and I were courting, we snuck off our parents' boat, found a mossy bank in the deserted woods of an island in the Gulf of Maine, ripped off our clothes, and proceeded to have about half the blood sucked out of our bodies by a swarm of mosquitoes, even more ecstatic than we were because they probably hadn't seen so much raw flesh in their entire short lives. A few years later, living in the Colorado Rockies, now married, we decided to try it on a summit we'd just conquered uh, Mount Extel. Uh Again we succeeded Naked and coupling like goats Well above 12,000 feet But not before my beloved's lips Began to turn blue I should add that it's hard Under such circumstances To tell the difference Between cries of joy And exclamations about a rock That is pressing on a kidney In the end, the reason sex feels so incredibly good, perhaps better for humans than for most other animals, if our idiotic behavior is any indication, is that our offspring are dependent for so long. The delicious road to orgasm short-circuits the wakeful part of the cortex that knows what will happen if the woman gets pregnant. 18 years of servitude. My children are the joy of my life, but that's my story and I'm sticking to it. Every cell in the body starts screaming, don't think, stop paying attention, go dog, go. This siren's voice can easily overwhelm every other kind of common sense, so why not trample the still small voice that calls out for a little physical comfort? As in, don't we need a pillow? Or, gee, it's raining. But here, in the calm and thoughtful space of discursive practice, we can and should be somewhat more discriminating. We are free. We can choose. Sort of. Haven't thousands of generations worked hard to invent things like satin, in-floor heating, and hot water on demand... Most natural environments just aren't conducive to the distracting practical complexities of penetration, including, say, the option of cleaning up afterwards. In addition to those described above, where I and one or another beloved were assaulted by venomous insects, unwanted observers, and harsh elements, there have been other encounters where I learned how sand and friction don't mix, how distracting prowling animals can be, and so on. It's all fun and games until you need stitches and a tetanus shot. There's a funny video clip that made its rounds on the web a few years ago of a handsome couple somewhere in the Alps who belay into space from an immense overhanging outcrop of rock. In their climbing harnesses, twirling in the breeze with terra firma firma, nowhere in sight, they proceed to have fairly acrobatic sex. One of the interesting things about the footage, however, is how many shots it obviously took. I just wish I could hear some of the outtakes. Uh, Okay, can you swing over this? Oops, no, not there. More to the... Ow, hey, look out. Sorry, do you want me to... Wait, you're too low. I, you know, I really need to pee. Yeah, okay, you guys, can you pull us up for a few minutes? Oh, sorry, was that your stomach? No, I'm fine, really, but I, I can't feel my right leg. In the end, it hardly seems worth it unless you're getting paid. So I conclude with the humble proposition that as beautiful as the outdoors can ever be, it is preferable to encounter it clothed and to keep it a wall or two distant from any passionate embrace. I spend as much time as I can in the outdoors, and a lot of it on mountains, but as romantic as it may seem, screwing on a rock or a beach or in a field or a forest is often uncomfortable and sometimes dangerous. Tigers, spiders, porcupines, rhinoceroses, sparrows, and dolphins are better suited for that kind of thing than we are, because they have claws, armor, wings, flippers, and small brains. Perhaps we're spoiled, but perhaps we should leave it to them. We should let the wilderness reside in our hearts And encounter it mostly clothed Rather than getting down in it like monkeys After all, monkeys have opposable thumbs On their feet and more hair It's a kind of Nostalgie de la boue hubris To think we can swing like that In fact, it may be that civilization itself Was born the very day the two creatures Who became the first man and woman Looked at each other's side and said You know, I think this would probably go better in the cave (laughs) My love, her breasts are indeed like clusters of grapes and her stature like unto a palm tree. The smell of her nose is like apples, her teeth like a flock of sheep, which have come up from the washing, and her temples like a piece of a pomegranate. But, gentle reader, let us remember in our ardor, the articulate ardor that burns so brightly within us, that those are similes, and we are but human, and for humans, bed is best. (laughs) So. (laughs) Uh, so there's, I read that in part because it's fun to read and, you know, I like talking dirty. And, uh, and uh, because it's a, it's a shot at creating an idiom very much involved in the natural world. And I hope people pick up the subtext that I like nature. So
4: because
1: um, that's, that's what it's about, really. Um, questions, comments, discussion. Here we go. Yes, sir.
4: Well, I'm totally new to the area, and I can't, uh, given my background, comment on the literary
2: merits or demerits. But, uh, I'm accustomed to what seems to be a totally different genre of nature writers.
4: I'm thinking of Kathleen Dean Moore, Greg Childs, and most particularly Doug Chadwick, mm-hmm. with his Wolverine Way, who really write...
1: Themselves from mm-hmm. Well, I mean, it's a big tent, right? I mean, there's poetry of the natural world that's where, you know, I think part of modern, uh, it's a very important source of modern uh, environmental consciousness. And I'd point to lyrical ballads as one of the places where that happens in English, or Shelley's Mont Blanc. I, I mean, there's they're... memoir, there's drama, there's fiction, there's, uh, you name it. I yeah, it's a big no, role. I, mean,
3: I think that's what the critic, who Jim Hinch, who I was reading from, was saying earlier. And I think that as a memoirist, I'm guilty of that to a certain extent, which is staying within the human realm, the story of human strife and change. You know, the changes we go through and what we're all dealing with in our human lives, as opposed to the vastness beyond us, which most nature writers. True, what I think of as true nature writers The ones who are They observe the natural world And they make it they, make, they introduce us to what we really Don't know anything about And they make new what we already think we know Something about Those people do insert themselves less Into their work Although they do insert themselves Some, some of the ones we're really familiar with Like Craig Childs is there on the page Frequently Barry Lopez is there all the time what I was trying to get to, and I cut myself short because I was trying to stay within time, my time limit, is that the um, in, in my little introduction to this talk, I, I said that we expand the territory of both memoir and nature writing. I think that's wrong. I, I, I am not expanding the territory of nature writing, but what I am doing is expanding the audience for nature writing, by telling a story which humans crave and I, I really didn't get around to talking about how I did that which is what I promised and we promised to do tonight is tell you how we do it how, how it worked for us for me it worked because I had two main narratives that I could use as sort of locomotives to pull along all the other stuff I wanted to talk about and say but I made sure that the story was moving at all times. There was the narrative of the love affair and then there was the narrative of my family's relationship to our land and my father's commandment that we hang on to it which was in danger of being broken throughout this whole book so that's how I keep the story moving and that's And I do think I brought attention to a a part of nature that I care very much about that most people who read that book would never have read anything about
2: otherwise. And yes, and I do agree with Juline and Dave on those points. And I also think that one thing that's happening in our culture is there has been a tremendous divide. Um, we, we've witnessed a tremendous divide between um, the natural and the human. And so I think that one thing we're trying to do is find new resonances and new ways that the the human, human consciousness can connect with with the true natural world as our own nature.
1: You know, one thing I'd suggest in, in, to think about is that most authors who, who are deeply involved in this, and I consider myself to be one of them, and, and these writers as well, don't only work in one genre. I mean, look at Edward Abbey. Essays, fiction, poetry. Um, look at, look at E.O. Wilson, one of the greatest minds... In the world, as far as I can tell, uh, uh, one of the, the preeminent scientists in his field, a novelist, an essayist, a literary critic, a, a commentator, a theoretician. Um, so it's, it's a big world, and uh, uh, most of the strong writers, I think, write in a number of genres. And I, I guess I'd, uh, I think that's a good thing, because it, it, it is ultimately a form of artifice. E- even, even the canons of science involve involve that. Another question? I saw a hand. Yes, please. You
4: know, I'm not You know, a number of years ago, there was this feminist movement that, you know, connected, like, the woman's body to nature. And I know Terry Tempest Williams wrote stuff like that, where, you know... I, and um, it mm-hmm. seems to me that um, all of you are sort of... You know, put, you are in the dramas that you're creating in nature are, are creating, like, uh, gender-based and gender, gender-antagonistic and gender-uniting dramas. They're all about... You know, sex, and love stories, and, <laughs> and, and I, I do. You know, like Julian when you were reading about, you know, uniting with the lake, it was just you and the lake and the, the feeling of the water on your yourself. And, and Gail, that moment with the lion, you know, kind of went outside of that. I don't know if you, if any of you want to comment on, you know, what is it about, you know, the self and the nature and sexuality. Maybe the feminine consciousness or the masculine consciousness that you know approaches nature that creates different kinds of uh, literary um, uh,
2: drama. Well, my sense is that it has to do with the divine feminine and and the reemergence of uh, Gaia, the the earth the earth goddess in our time which I think is very much happening. It's happening on an individual, transformative level and also cultural. So that, you
4: felt, was
2: part of your narrative as well? Yeah, yeah yes. I, well, I feel that it there was a, a seeking. I, I feel that um, my experience, I don't think I would have lasted very long on the Pacific Crest Trail if something hadn't taken over, if the trail hadn't taken me over. And it was a very intuitive um, I, I sometimes think of it as the heroine's journey rather than the hero's journey, with uh, you know Joseph Campbell and departure, initiation, and re- in return. Um, but I feel with with a boon for the community. But I feel that the uh, the deep feminine is much more of a spiral down and in that in, into the deeper realms of the intuitive and the soulful.
4: So the whole- Uh, <laughs> um, you know, it's kind of like there's something, you know, this was the story to attract the reader's subject and to experience nature in a way that, you know, you think maybe they would be able to handle it. Um, but there was something much deeper going on for you in that. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, in the relationship with Ward, I didn't think there was a particularly anything that I was trying to say about femininity in nature or union with nature or anything like that. The Ward relationship was just about trying to get back into a relationship to the land I grew up on because he had a relationship with his land, which was like the relationship I had grown up in and wanting to, to mend that rift. But I do deeply feel this connection to the earth that I think some women tend to be more aware of and I, I just think it's dangerous to generalize about, you know, women being closer to nature and all that. But I would say I did write an essay about the women where I grew up being out of touch with their bodies and also with their feelings and not able to talk about their bodies or their feelings. and. Meanwhile, they were nurturing all this life. They were uh, feeding, they were giving milk to, ba- to baby lambs and taking care of all these uh, domestic animals and, and their children and so on. So if anyone is more suited to defend life, such as the aquifer, the water that makes all life possible... You would think they would be the ones to do it, yet they, they, they weren't really in touch with the travesty that was happening on the landscape. Well, also, isn't narrative really about um, you know, making contact not just with the land, but with the water? Right. I mean,
4: that's,
3: it isn't water? Water is considered very feminine, you know, it was by some people, but, you know, it really has no sex. I mean, come on, it's water, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Yeah, literarily, definitely It shows so, up yeah.
1: This is a very complicated question I can't really answer it at length There's a whole realm of um, eco-poetics And there's a realm of eco Called eco-feminist <laughs> poetics And the battles over this are very tendentious and intense And impenetrable very often And uh, it's it's really very complex um, In my book, there are 35 chapters That's the only one that really talks about sex And as you can tell, I see it as rather comic And uh I don't think there's a and most of the others I'm just sort of rifling through them in my head don't don't talk about gender or sex at all uh, really not overtly certainly um, and there are men and women in them um, but it's, it's that's just one chapter and they're all very they're all quite different and some of them are quite sad Uh, It's not a funny book, and it's not a book about sex. It it has funny, sexy parts. I guess I'll just... uh, It's such an enormous literature. It's an academic growth industry, you know? And people fight these pitched theoretical battles because ten years at stake, and uh, they get very nasty with each other, and there are a number of strains in this this branch of poetics. But just to give you a sense of how complex it is, one of the more famous essays um, about the natural world... And skiing and alpinism is Susan Sontag's essay, uh, Fascinating Fascism, which was a review of a book by Lenny Riefenstahl. So you've got one woman writing about another. And basically Susan Sontag's take on these films of Riefenstahl, who is the photographer who Hitler hired to do Olympia and um, the Nuremberg, the Triumph of the Will, which is the great film of the Nuremberg rallies. You've all seen footage of it. You know, the huge fascist rallies with the gigantic flags in the 30s. She was a very, very great photographer and lived a long life. Claimed she never really understood fascism and was just sort of... Hitler was just this nice man who paid her money to make these movies. She also was a great skier and a naturalist and made movies with Otto Frank Frank, um, in the 30s. Some of the best movies about skiing made before... um, I mean, for decades. And they're fantastic and they're funny and charming. But they also have a kind of an ideology... In them, which Sontag goes after, and she basically says, Susan Sontag, again, a, a great female critic, obviously, and nobody's fool, says, you know, this whole uh, this whole uh, mystical notion of union with nature, um, whether it comes from men or women, and she includes Lenny Riefenstahl, and she's attacking Lenny Riefenstahl, she says, it's fascist. This is authoritarian fascist thinking. And down with it. Down with it now. And now I think there are problems with the argument, but it gives you a sense of just how complex this is and the, and what's at stake. And, um, you know, so the gender wars here, and they get very intense, are, um, you know, there's a lot of authoritarian thinking. Um, and it's, it's very tangled uh, because, you know, there are a number of people who, who are at great pains to... Uh, dismantle what we are talking about here as nature writing as being inherently essentialist and therefore um, you know dishonest uh, and uh, politically retrograde and you know there are men and women on both sides of this debate and and uh, uh, the, the, the the kinds of uh, I would say that in general it's a kind of a I don't know how much good has come out of it uh, I, I I tend to I tend to think that. Um, we're all in this together and the natural world is real and we should treat it as real and we all have a very high stake in it and it's a team effort <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean it's i probably got some more fun when everyone's naked actually but uh, I, I so that, that's a, not really a a critical response but a, just a sort of a suggestion
4: Could you
1: explain why saw those films about as she did she saw them as proto-fascist
4: Well, gender
1: and just to be
2: yeah.
1: Just well, I think the the question of gender is. I'm just pointing out that these are two women um, who take very very different views of things, and both are very aware of that. So, you know, the notion that you know women would be on one side and men on the other. I, I would, that's just sort of an example of how complex this all really gets out there in, in actuality and in the actuality of such debates about culture. But to be as brief about it as possible, what Sontag says is that the aesthetic of Riefenstahl's films, while they appear to be apolitical because they mystify the natural world, the the feelings that they create and the feelings of transformation and transcendence and personal triumph in in the climbing of mountains is is, uh, akin to the triumph of the will that she associates with fascist uh, aesthetics and ideology. And now, it's a very tendentious argument. I happen to disagree with parts of it quite strongly, and I, I write about that in my own book. But that's her argument, is that, in fact, you can't really separate these things, as Lenny Riefenstahl said you could. And she's very smart, Sontag, and she makes a good point, which is that. Are uh, no, but it's, a, it's, an, it's an interesting. Observation, You know, and there are people, men and women, on all sorts of sides of this. Um, and, you know, S- Sontag is not just any woman, after all. And Riefenstahl is not just any woman. These are very, very powerful artists and critics and taking very different views. Um, and it's a very complex I set think, of subjects.
3: I think we had another question back here. In, in our books, does it vary by character, or is, is that what you're asking? Yeah, do you think deliberately about that? Each character yeah, well, actually, what uh, the main relationship in here is between me and, and the land, and between my family and the land. The land is actually probably the main character in the book. You know, um, it's, it's more a creator than a character, really. It has that function of making having made us who we are. And so, really, my book is a lot about all these different people's relationship to that land. And my father's relationship is very much different from mine. And, it's, and mine and my father's is very much different from Ward's. Um, my father was, you know, you can probably imagine, he was a farmer. And so, he was making money. And, you know, but he was deeply connected but would never use the phrase connected to the land. That would be really hokey to him. And everything came down to the bottom line. So... And Ward and I were more poetic in our relationship to the land. I wanted to say one quick thing that I forgot to say earlier, and that's that I wrote about the process of writing the Ogallala Road in an essay in Poets and Writers, and there are a few copies of that here tonight, the Tattered Cover, brought over, if you want to read more about that. In the current issue? In the current issue. It's the May-June issue.
2: Yeah. It, that I think that's a really interesting question. Porter and I came to our hike of the Pacific Crest Trail from pretty much polar opposite viewpoints, and um, in fact, the way that uh, and the way that the uh, title came about, I promise not to suffer, is that um, he. I was having enough trouble on the earlier, in the earliest stages of the hike that when we got to this jumping-off point at Kennedy Meadows before the High Sierra, he said, "If you're going to bail, now's the time," <laughs> and um, I, I said. Um, me Tarzan he said me not Jane <laughs> and and so he you know at various points on uh, up to that jumping off point of the high Sierra he I had feared that he well, he had threatened to stamp our zip code our Houston zip, zip code on my forehead and send me back to Houston and um, so he said I just hate to see you suffer and I said I promise not to suffer and so I, you know I think up to that point and up to the point where I, the mountain lion and I, encountered each other, I I was suffering, but the suffering was transformed into some, something much more wonderful. So I, I think it's kind of great if in, if your characters have different, uh, sometimes opposing relationships to nature.
1: Um, I don't write much fiction. I've written some, but uh, it's in a drawer. I, I I write creative nonfiction and poetry and criticism and scholarship. I think different communities, certainly, and I write about this, have uh, different kinds of relationships, are defined in part by the way they relate to the natural world. Crested Butte, where I've lived for many years, um, certainly has that, although there are many different kinds of people there. But it's an interesting question, and it seems to me to be... uh, a reasonable way to think about character, absolutely. Although, and, you know, Ed Abbey does this philosophically, very profoundly, especially in his one really successful novel, *The Monkey Wrench Gang*. But um, again, I think what the trick is the idiom. How are you going to do it without, in a convincing, compelling, subtle, complex way, so that the characters feel like they're alive? You know, and that's 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 the art, and that's that. Uh, but I, it's it, conceptually it seems very sound because people are, in part, defined in that way. I thought the example you gave just now about your, your family is very powerful. I grew up around lots of farmers as well as on my fa- although my family wasn't involved in that. And yeah, the relationship is very different. I think we have time for one more question, maybe. Comment, manifesto. Yes, sir. And do any of you think about? <laughs> well, that you know, that's a work of um it's a, it's it's obviously a work tendentious, I use that in the best possible sense, you know, uh, meaning there's a, it, it aims to convince, it aims to change. Um another a different genre. Yeah. Different well and E.O. Wilson, you know, ha, has had a huge impact on all of us as well in a book like Sociobiology, even people who haven't read it have been influenced by the thinking in it. Um and he won the Pulitzer Prize for it after all. And I'd say that uh Well, I think everybody would like to have an impact, but um, not everybody is writing to convince. You know, so, I mean, very often, and there's nothing wrong with raising consciousness and by giving pleasure, simply by giving pleasure in language. um, So there are many different rhetorical models for how one might have such an impact.
3: Well, Silent Spring was a once-in-a-century kind of book. I mean, an amazing impact it had. But there are others that are having similar but not quite so strong impacts, but still strong, and like Michael Pollan. Yeah. Everything he writes has a huge impact. Uh, but the omnivore's dilemma really yeah. has affected how people think about corn, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And that's my topic, too. <laughs> I, I hate corn, you know, uh, the way it's grown and the way we've what, – what we're doing to the land to grow it. But um, I am also writing to convince, um, partially. Um, I want people to care about the aquifer and and then get involved at some level. Um, But I knew that I couldn't weigh this book down with too much about the aquifer, and it's not what I do anyway. It's not my shtick, you know. Uh, So there's about 21 pages about the aquifer. I went through and counted them once in this book. Um, but when you thread them throughout, then it becomes the theme throughout and it kind of builds and intensifies as you go. Can I, and then, can I ask yeah. One more question? Okay. Is it related to this? Yes. Okay. So we're, we're
4: facing climate change, right? Uh huh. Um, so, what do you three writers predict the, the kind of literature that climate change will, how will that change? Already we, we have it, right? That's we okay. have it here, and mm-hmm. we have a lot of articles and nonfiction about it, but how will those kinds of dramatic and
2: horrific climactic events affect, say, poetry? My sense is that what what's happening now is we are utterly changing our relationship with nature and that all of the things that are happening are affecting are affecting us, and that um, people like me, who were totally clueless about the natural world, are being drawn into a new relationship with nature.
1: Art's like the canary in the coal mine, and we're already seeing a lot of this, especially in films, but also in novels, and we see, um, they're all dystopian. You know, these dystopian Hollywood blockbusters even, like The Day After Tomorrow, and um, there's so many in which you know, we live, they represent a world in which uh, the climate has altered and created a, a, a kind of an apocalypse, you know, where human beings have fouled the nest. And that's a genre, the, this sort of environmental apocalyptic novel going all the way back to Soylent Green, actually. It's a genre. Um, it's really a religious narrative about apocalypse. Um, and I, so that's one, just one example for, for good or ill. Some of them are, are uh, and some of them are quite good, you know. Uh, so...
3: Well, I hope there's more. I hope there's more. I mean, how can there not be more writing about our impact on nature? How can, I mean, I personally have so much I'd like to write about that it has nothing to do with nature directly, really. But I'm not doing that writing anymore. I'm not writing about that because I feel like I'd be fiddling while Rome burns. <laughs> you know, I, this is just how I feel. It, it's like, why, how can we, how can I spend my time talking about. Um, you know, it's still important. I still love to read those books that are about the human condition and our psychology and so on. But it's just so critical what's happening right now. And I think the you know the more writers who jump in there and are just screaming about it. You know, I I, I have this opportunity to write an essay for Spirit Magazine, but I but I'm not supposed to bring anybody down. That's what I was told. The editor told me not to bring anybody down. You know this. Well, they're in the air. I guess they don't want to land too quickly. It's a Southwest Airlines magazine, right? And it's about, and I'm supposed to write a story about home. Well, if I write my story about home, it's gonna have what we've done to my home in it. There's no way I can not, and and that's what's wrong really with the commercial magazines and outlets that we have right now is they don't want to bum anybody out. It could be though that our
1: entire psychology will also be affected by this. Mm-hmm. Could be. Yeah,
4: and those psychological
1: stories will have a different. That's true. Yeah. So we're at about nine thirty. Um,
2: and and we'll be in the we're back. We're here. Uh, we're happy to sign books. sign books
1: in the back. You know, yeah, you, lavishly uh, inscribed. Thank in you fact. all. <laughs> thank you for coming.
0: Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.